0: Hey guys, my guest this week is Bill Partland. Bill is currently a professor at Arizona State University, focusing primarily on directing, which is what he spent most of his career doing, and what a career it has been. Uh, Bill has worked quite a bit with the National Playwrights Conference. Uh, He focuses primarily on developing new works, which is obviously exciting for me if you've listened to this podcast. Um, I got the very good fortune to be directed by Bill some time ago in a Liz W. Adams stage reading. I was a part of uh, just such a font of wisdom and experience and talent and uh, just good humor and, and grace and encouragement towards the, the new generation of uh, up-and-coming performers and writers and theater practitioners. And i just was so lucky to get a chance to speak with him, and I think you will really enjoy my conversation with Bill Partland. I don't know how it got here, but I know that it was fun know that it was worth it I would never be here if I could Don't you know the there to make the rain just feel good I can't stand the rain I'll stay out in the sun till I'm insane Real quick, before we can get into the interview itself, we suffered some technical difficulties and that mixed a healthy dose of human error from my part, resulted in us losing the first couple minutes of audio for the interview, unfortunately. So to summarize what's going on there, Bill started off talking about his childhood, performing in his grandparents' basement with a few of the neighbor kids, and that developing into a love of acting and uh, performing music when he got to high school. That's where he had a teacher who encouraged him to look into alternative and avant-garde performance styles and actually inspired him to apply to uh, go to school for theater at Dartmouth. Uh, while he was at Dartmouth, he also uh, worked at the, the fledgling class of the um, National Theater Institute or a certificate and also started uh, getting into directing classes where he actually had the opportunity to direct his first new play from a fellow Dartmouth student. And that is where we begin here. Play as an actor
1: were two sort of amazing phenomena. One was Jonathan Pendleton, who was a a senior at Dartmouth and is one of the founders of Palabolos, the dance company, which started at Dartmouth right at that time. So I had this wonderful actor in one of the roles. And the director of the theater program auditioned for me and actually acted in this play. Wow. Which was a level of trust and just a sense that wow, this man is not standing in judgment. He is is, uh, in the play. He isn't trying to direct it himself. It was just this wonderful experience working on what turned out to be, I thought, quite a a strong new play by a Dartmouth student. So that, I guess, got me started into directing. And so then I decided that that would be what I would pursue uh, upon graduation. I was lucky enough to get something called a senior fellowship at Dartmouth, which meant I didn't have to take any specific classes in my senior year and in that year about halfway through that that year I was actually interviewed to stage manage a brand new theater company founded by Tina Packer who was the head of the overseas program at London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. She'd gone to the Ford Foundation, and got funding for a company she was going to create that would work with American, and and actually one South African and one Canadian actor, on a British approach to Shakespeare, working with the Royal Shakespeare Company. So she got this funding from the Ford Foundation, but she was just an individual, so she asked the O'Neill to be the administrators of that funding, and she said, I need stage managers. I had stage managed for the National Playwrights Conference the summer prior to that and taken a company that was a guest company into New York with a show as a stage manager at the end of that summer. So they called and said, hey, would you like to come and interview with Tina Packer to maybe go to England and work with the Royal Shakespeare Company staff on a British approach to Shakespeare with American actors. It was extraordinary.
0: Few things that I'm curious about, based on what you're telling me there. So, uh, was the National Theatre Institute your doorway into the National Playwrights Conference? Then was it just one thing after another? Or? Absolutely. In other
1: words, because I'd been at the at the in, at the institute, I found out about the fact that they hired some students. Hired meaning you get a hundred bucks for the month, and they feed and housed you, <laughs> yeah. which is not, yeah, bad. not bad. Yeah. So I have certainly applied right away to to stage manage uh, a summer later, hmm. and. Um, and that was certainly my introduction to professional theater, to amazing work getting done by major New York directors and some extraordinary actors on brand-new plays from people who would submit from all over the country. So that experience, and, and as it turned out, sure. as I say the first summer I, I stage managed for them, I was actually hired to work on The Lighting Crew, and then this guest company came from Jamaica with a play they were, ta- they were working on, um, but also a play they were going to then which had been successful in Jamaica mm. that they were taking into Bedford-Stuyvesant to the Billy Holiday oh, Theater. Wow. It's an interesting story. Final night of the performance of the play that we, that, they were, oh. that we worked on at the O'Neill, the director of the company was in New York already preparing the theater for us to bring the show in because oh. I'd been hired to stage manage it. When the, one of the company members came to me and said, well, we've talked to Dennis. We don't think the O'Neill is paying us enough to do this show in New York. So we're not going to go to New York to do this unless they pay- they pay us more. <laughs> so I was a 21 year old stage manager at the time, and I so my job was and I sort of called George White, the founder of the O'Neill Center, at 8:30 at night during this intermission when they told me this, and I said, George, is there any way you can come and meet with? with this company because they're they're feeling this way and he said yes I will be there you will be there as meant both management and their representative and they should send two representatives to this meeting so we met in George's office at about 1130 that night on the grounds of the O'Neill and George bless his heart stated their grievance and he said you're right I'm not paying you enough it is as much as I could raise so here's my promise to you. I'm going to go try to raise more. If I can, I'm going to pay you more and if I can't, I won't. Which was all they needed. Yeah. And then George of course went out and raised more and actually paid them more during this. I think because of the way that worked out, mm-hmm. I was someone that that he could recommend to Tina Packer to to potentially stage manage
0: for. You took that act right away and obviously act as a facilitator. Now do you have be going from such a short gap between high school theater and working with the Playwrights Conference. Do you ever feel like you missed a step somewhere in your kind of professional career? Do you feel like you're going to that caliber so early?
1: Well, in some ways not, because it happened in in the beginning of my sophomore year, and I was there as a student, and we were all students there. So in a way, it was eye-opening at exactly the right moment for me, because I realized, wow, this is what it takes to succeed in New York City. And we were working. We, you know, we were being taught. Jim Henson brought the Muppets up and taught us puppetry for a few, a couple of days at that point, because there was a, a puppetry class that we were taking. One of the local people who helped fund the O'Neill Center in its very early days were Margot and Rufus Rose, who were uh, the creators of the Howdy Doody show, which was a major puppet show. So, so they also insisted that we te- we learn puppetry, which was great. Um, Um, So, in a sense, it was just, it was an eye-opening... I grew up in New Hampshire, right, so I hadn't been to New York, I'd been to New York once (laughs) and seen My Fair Lady on Broadway, but I really, you know, hadn't experienced the the professional world until there, where it was a very intense, we worked six days a week, probably 12 hours a day, as students, learning these various things, and so you kind of got a picture early on of the dedication and the kind of people that make it in, in that world... So that was eye-opening going back to then completing two more years of school before, as I say, going off to work in England with this, the Shakespeare Company. By the way, the company was called Shakespeare and Company and it still exists now. It is a major Shakespeare theater in the Boston area, so they, they are, have continuously been around since those days, still run by Tina Packer. <laughs> Kristen Linklater of the Linklater Voice Method was a part of the company, when, uh, when we were working there. We worked with some extraordinary Royal Shakespeare Company experts, um, including John Barton, who just passed away last week, actually. So it was, again, each of these experience was the perfect next step. And then, while I was in England working with Shakespeare and Company, we were then came, brought, we brought The Taming of the Shrew back from England, which we'd worked on for, we worked on it for seven months, basically, yeah. this one production. Oh. And then we brought it back where Guest Company at the O'Neill that summer did a production of it sort of preparing to go into New York with it at a theater on Long Island, uh, the John Drew Theater on Long Island. And then we brought it into the Performing Garage in New York City where it had a a three-week run, a limited run for specific. But in the meantime, I had been uh, uh, notified that I was being offered uh, the Bush Fellowship at the University of Minnesota to get my MFA in directing. I had applied to two schools, one was Yale, which I didn't get into, the other was this fellowship at the University of Minnesota. So I literally went right back to school from up two weeks late, actually arriving on campus two weeks late to start uh, my master's degree at Minnesota, because the show ran in New York until two weeks into the term.
0: When it came to cementing your path down directing, and I know you spoke a little bit about the early experiences you had and it felt like a comfortable fit. Was there ever a a flip the switch moment on an act two? I realize it's what I need to do now moment?
1: (laughs) Yes and no. In some ways, because as I say, I continued acting. One of the factors turned out to be that I was also in a rock and roll band Mm -hmm. at Dartmouth so I had rock and roll band rehearsals I had acting rehearsals and then directing rehearsals Mm -hmm. and something had to give Mm. so actually in that case the rock and roll band had to give shortly after yes (laughs) but what I found was that uh, I really thought about this and and the thing I love about directing is you are constantly a student you end up working on a play that you know very little about, perhaps, the world of that play, and so you have to go and actually understand it in some depth. And so there was a part of me that thought, well, that's one of the things I love most about uh, being directing in the theater is that the kind of research you need to do, the kind of understanding you need to gain, you do that as an actor as well, but somehow not quite with the same sense of Communicating it to all the designers and the actors, and and being a, a kind of hub for information in some ways. So that maybe was the most appealing. At my final, actually, one of the things I had arranged to do at Dartmouth in my senior fellowship project was I had done uh, a, con- a couple of concerts, solo concerts, um, on on just solo guitar and singing, because I had to drop the rock and roll band, but I didn't want to drop music. So. I actually was scheduled to also potentially do an opening for one of the concerts that was coming into, into Hanover at the time, and in the spring, and, and I thought, okay, this is more important to go off and do this. So, yeah. uh, but that was part of it, too. I also thought about, well, what about trying to do a career in music? But I wasn't
0: really a really good songwriter, and so I thought, well, this is the, this is the path. Do you think there's been any tangible way that uh, your background in music has influenced your your style or approach to anything you do in theatre? I believe so. Well partly it even influences how I
1: choose stage managers because when you think about it, every play or musical has a rhythm that gets created in the rehearsal process to some degree uh, and comedy is particularly dependent upon rhythms. So when I'm looking at stage managers I realize that if they have a great sense of rhythm It smooths everything in terms of calling the show, knowing when the cue should hit, and all of those things. So uh, I think rhythm, and therefore musicality in some ways, is an important aspect of the theater, whether it's a musical or or a straight play, a comedy or a tragedy. There is a kind of momentum and and rhythm that gets created in any production, and it's unique to that production. And as a director, you also have to be in tune with that. It influences how I talk to designers because oftentimes and you know, certainly many many contemporary plays in some ways were written almost as movies. They move from scene to scene, there are different locations and so one of the problems always to solve is how do we transition from one scene to another? How do we get this this set off, that set on or or whatever? So in some ways as a director you're even planning out the rhythm of your scene changes and that has so much to do with how the audience will experience it. And certainly even when talking to playwrights, I talk to them a lot about how they envision these worlds suddenly becoming a different world or how, how to, what kind of rhythm are they anticipating if all, everything has to stop and go dark while this wagon rolls on the stage and another one rolls off. And so it, it also has to do with understanding how the arc of the show itself has a kind of life
0: of its own. That's an interesting comment. I, I realize it's, I've had those thoughts before. Is, uh, looking at certain musicals and things and, and realizing the scene changes they have set up it's almost works as an establishing shot of the next, uh, next scene is similar to a movie that kind of concretes that. That's interesting. And now that there
1: are, there's so much use of mediated performance with projections and things, we're even getting closer to that in some ways. And one of the things we try to teach here And one of the ways I actually attract some very top-notch MFA candidates in directing is the opportunity to work here with designers who who are also learning how to use media to enhance the story, not to become wallpaper or to somehow become the problem for the actors, if you know what I mean. But how do you use these new tools as a director to really tell the story better without
0: stomping on uh, what makes live theater live theater? I've spoken with a few people who work in directing and in film and uh, directors of photography as well. And they both kind of seem in agreements that the director focuses more on the, the creative, the themes, and, you know, things to pull from it. And the, the technical directors and designers are the ones who are in charge of uh, having that that knowledge, that the director shouldn't necessarily be concerned with having that level of knowledge. Do you agree with that, would you say? Um,
1: I think, yes, I agree with it to the effect that I couldn't certainly uh, <laughs> talk to a media designer and say, no, do it this way, do it this way. But I should be able, as a director, to communicate as clearly as possible. And in that process, from point A in design all the way through the final production, what I want to communicate with media designers is is that that balancing act that we have to do in which we are not overwhelming the live performance, but we are, in fact, finding ways to enhance it. And working on The Nether actually was a wonderful opportunity for me. I, don't, I haven't used a lot of media in my in the pieces I've done here, but this was one that really demanded it. And I was working with a terrific graduate student, uh, MFA uh, Dallas, who uh, was very expert at, at what he was doing. So this was a wonderful communication process that we went through all the way through right up until opening night literally where we were fixing things and 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 sort of balancing things along the way so it was uh, it was a terrific uh, opportunity to work with um, gifted uh, mm-hmm. graduate student uh, designer and and for me to, to get a chance to okay how do we balance these things out so
0: how necessary would you say it would be that a director goes through an intensive kind of like what you did when you were first starting off and you know exploring the te- technical elements of theater and things, you know, when you were at the Institute. Do you feel like that's something crucial for a, a director to go through at, at an point? early level?
1: I do. I think, uh, not say at any level, but sure. to some degree, really understanding as much as you can about everyone's job mm-hmm. in a production. Uh, not that you know, you know how to do it. In fact, ideally, the reality is, you realize you don't know how to do it. What you do want to be able to trade on are the, the skills and talents and... Vision of designers that you work with, so you want to empower them to put their imagination to work by potentially inspiring them with a vision for the piece that I wouldn't know how to accomplish. I would just, I could just ideally put into words. This is what this sh- this should feel like. Here are some images that I brought in that feel like the light might have this kind of quality at this moment, or there's a, here are some images of a historical situation, or whatever. The, but it's not, a, not to tell them what their job is. They know their job. What I want to do is inspire them to bring back their best vision and see how all of us as designers and director can literally create a new world, forge a, a, a physical and, and mental space that, uh, that the audience will experience.
0: Going off that, I, I want to go back to what you mentioned before about something you enjoyed about directing, the idea of researching and exploring a new world within the play. You do seem predisposed towards new works and, and premieres and things like that. Has that always been an instinct of yours, or where do you feel like that developed from?
1: Well, that certainly developed because of the O'Neill. I mean, essentially, I was exposed very early to new plays, and probably my earliest Possible exposure, other than the one—well, in a New Play*, right. we did in my basement. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but ultimately, it was it was very clear to me right off the bat. Um, and I very much enjoy working with writers. I have huge respect for people who can write uh, plays. Um, it's it's a craft and it's a, and it's an art all at once. And I know how difficult it is. The, and I know having tried a couple of times to write a play, I also realized the world doesn't need any more bad playwrights. So, so, so I love working with gifted writers and I love the process of developing a play from an early stage all the way through to a production because I love that collaborative effort and I love being able when possible, and not all this doesn't always happen, but being get, able to get inside the world I believe they've created and together Sharing and understanding to a place where they feel comfortable that I, as the director, get it, and that I'm actually going to bring my skills to, at, at helping actors and designers um, get inside that and understand that and create and craft that. It's two sort of different skill sets. They can dream it up, but they may not necessarily have the skills to get an actor in the right place or or put a designer in the right in the right frame of the So. Uh, that to me is always an exciting process. I've always loved doing it, and I've been doing it since I was uh, in college, basically.
0: Yeah, that comment you said there struck me a little bit. That idea of the world doesn't need more bad playwrights. Excuse me, bad playwrights. That's that is a thought that I think a lot of people, you know, consider when they're worrying about whether or not they want to do a new show versus another production of hello dolly, another production of my fair lady. Uh, so what do you feel like, you know, from a director's standpoint, somebody who's cultivating that new talent and like you said, refining it and making it as something that, uh, is market worthy. Uh, how do you feel like you decide, you know, who gets the opportunities and, and how, who,
1: who do you lend your talents to? Well, that's a good question. And oftentimes it's not my decision. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But certainly at the... uh, So when I got out of graduate school, Mm -hmm. um, I actually got immediately hired to work full-time for the Mm -hmm. O'Neill Center. And I was their production manager and casting director. Um, And in that position, I was also reading plays for them. O'Neill would get about Mm 1,500 plays in the mail each year, and we would do 12. So they all had to get read and all of the reports were then written to go to the artistic director Lloyd Richards. So I read lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of plays, still do, and it's very difficult to tell you what it is that makes one suddenly jump out at you, but usually it's a unique voice of some sort. Sometimes it's an extraordinary um, subject matter or, or structure or way in which a story gets told but usually what gets to me is uh, as a writer who is grappling with some important issue and has found a microcosmic way to get to the macrocosm in mm-hmm. some ways, who has somehow isolated a, a set of events and, and uh, forces at work in a, in a play that take us, the audience, on that same journey and make us exit with more questions sometimes than we had going in but, but really confronting um, a highly dramatic uh, situation and that can be done in a lot of different ways at one point um, so uh, and at one point I also um, once I uh, finished being the production manager and, and casting director Lloyd hired me back the next year to start directing for him so um, and, and, and in that capacity I also sometimes served on the selection committee which had which read the hundred plays out of the 1500 that made it Pass that those initial readings, and Lloyd would send on to, to us to read. So I was reading often uh, eighty to a hundred plays um, in preparation for voting. At the seven of us trying to vote for the plays we most cared about, essentially. So that was a re- so that's very good training to to kind of see what 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 is getting written out there, and to begin to understand more clearly what sets one above the other. I remember at one point, Paula Vogel had submitted the Baltimore Waltz, which was a brand new play, and she was not yet a known playwright. Had had a little bit of success, I think, at the time. But she submitted Baltimore Waltz Mm -hmm. to the O'Neill, and it it made it, of course, to the selection committee, and we all read it. And I fought valiantly for it, because I loved it, and I Mm -hmm. thought it was quite brilliant. And the only thing that talked me out of just sort of digging in my heels <laughs> is what the only argument against it from the rest of the from other committee members and there were a couple of us fighting for it. So they basically said this play doesn't need what the O'Neill does. This play is going to make it anyway this play is going to get produced so we have limited resources we need to find a writer who's not at the quite this level yet um, or whose play is not this ready for production to, to to use one of our slots on and the minute I thought about it that way I went yeah you're right basically but but again that was uh, that was part of the learning process about what does the O'Neill do and what does that developmental process do and and then how can we put it to best use to make sure that we're finding and, and helping to develop some newer writers that are that are coming on coming sure. along
0: and I think I bring that up just specifically because we're in an academic setting. and I think this is probably the point in a lot of people's lives where they they start to dabble, you know, within the the writing idea, and and it is such a fine line I think to cross to discourage people. We definitely never want to. We want people to feel like they have the opportunity to move forward, but we have to be so careful with who we give opportunities to, and that. It becomes, a, I, I think, kind of a fine line across, you know, because we'd all love to work on August Wilson's new play. Um, but at a certain point, yeah, I guess they, he doesn't really need us to. Um. Right. And what's, what's, well, of course, I did work
1: with August on two of his sure, plays. Yeah. So, but what, what August and Lloyd kind of found mm-hmm. was it, what would happen to playwrights like August, like Lee Blessing, John Ware, some, you know, the major playwrights who have come through the O'Neill? Mm-hmm. They were allowed to resubmit year after year, Mm -hmm. but with each new play they had to be pushing a different boundary. So they were actually held to a higher standard in some ways before they could get in. But there was also a value to having at least one or two experienced playwrights amongst the twelve who'd been there before and because they're kind of a mentorship that could go on Yeah, and and it was really good because the other writers would uh, learn huge amounts about how to use the process well and what to expect and how not to home and cry, or, or how to stay up all night to do the rewrite for the next day. And, and, and oftentimes the other playwrights would go deliver them a cup of coffee or whatever because it's your turn tonight and we know what you're up to. So there became a nice camaraderie and sometimes that was very helpful for those writers to, to have a more experienced playwright in the mix. So in most cases Lloyd would reserve at least one space where he would choose whether the selection committee chose or not, he would go, No, I'm bringing this writer back with this play and stuff. So it's understandable in some ways that that, that was an, an aspect of the conference that was probably resented in some ways, but also I think an important
0: factor. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense when you explain it that way. Uh, I'm curious though, you know, in that setting, working with not only the famous playwrights, but, you know, name actors I saw on your CV Delroy Lindo, Francis McDormand, John Turturro. Going back to even when you were in Dartmouth and your. Uh, program director uh, as you audition for your show what is the different dynamic there is it something where you have to remind yourself that you can't treat this person any differently is there any kind of timidity on your on your part going into it
1: interestingly no and i think maybe because i've worked honestly with some of the most wonderful actors each each of the ones you've talked about Mm -hmm. and like howard rollins also i mean incredibly gifted actors and partly because they are Mm They're easy to work with in many ways. And again, they are all. They came back to the O'Neill, lived in a college dorm, essentially said to their agents and everyone else, no, I'm just going to go do this. And I'm going to earn Lord D uh, salary for a month. I'm going to spend a month doing something for my spirit and my, my love of doing this kind of work. So you just have to wait for a month. And then I'll be available to do any commercial or whatever thing that comes along. Um, in some ways it was very freeing because you're working with people who have less need for ego, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so, so for instance, uh, working with John Turturro, I, put him in, I didn't put him in the leading role mm-hmm. in, that, in the play. I actually put uh, an actor named Greg Gurman, who you would have seen in some as well, he's not sure. as well known, but a wonderful actor, who was more right for the role for this particular play that, I, that John acted in. Um, and, and John's wife, actually, John's wife is a very gifted actor. He didn't play his wife in the, in the play. She played the wife of of, uh, Craker, of yeah. Greg. <laughs> right. So uh, and, and and the actors would would come up to the O'Neill. Their agents would ask, "What roles are they playing?" And, and we would essentially say, "We don't know yet." So they would come un, without knowing what role they were going to play, or and usually they, they would play several roles. And that's partly why you know. There were sometimes actors who came to the O'Neill and the playwright would write the role out of play in the course of the four days of rehearsal and stuff. Huh. So uh, so we couldn't be you know, forthcoming and say, well, he's gonna play this and this and this. That role might not exist by sure. the time. So honestly, the, the kind of actors, you know, Kathy Bates, I mean, mm-hmm. some wonderful, uh, Sam Jackson mm-hmm. came up uh, several years and they were just wonderful and they would keep coming until literally the pressure not to be able to because everyone wants you and and you've got an entourage that depends on your income, you know what I mean? Eventually, they couldn't come back, mm-hmm. but not by choice. They were just very anxious to work there. I mean, Delroy, was, it wasn't at the O'Neill. That was actually for a, a full-scale portion of A Lesson from was yeah. And again, m- 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 uh, he wasn't the big name he, he is now when I worked with him, but it's just, no, I, I love working with gifted actors no matter what.
0: Now on the flip side of that working with student actors now at this point mm-hmm. in your life. So where is the different dynamic there? I mean, I, I would I would say or I would just, I would assume that there might be even more of a risk of uh, of ego um, coming in at, at this early in the process where people are just looking to make their mark and uh, and maybe reassure themselves that this is something that they can do. Is that something that you've seen? It truly isn't here. And I have loved
1: working with the student actors here. It's uh, it's a tribute I think to the training they get here and also I think to the actors who are drawn to, to working in the theater here that I find a lot of giving a, a lot of uh, camaraderie and, and genuine work being done by our student actors, and uh, I've really enjoyed working with students here. It's, yes, mm-hmm. there's more teaching involved in some ways, mm-hmm. trying to tap into some instincts that haven't fully been trained yet or whatever, but what I do find um, here is that there's a, an openness and a willingness to learn and a, and a kind of eagerness to get inside the role and to understand ha- how it all works that bypasses any, any of, the, of those difficulties. It, it, it is, as I say, it, it's, there's a little more variation here in terms of training and just experience mm-hmm. and so as a director you're always adjusting to work with each different actor to try to uh, reach them where they need to be reached. Uh, but that's also true in the profession because you end up working with actors, many of whom are very gifted, but they've been trained in different ways as well. So some of the kinds of questions you might ask in the rehearsal process um, or observations you might make will hit different actors differently. And so you are always adjusting slightly the way you communicate with individuals in the cast. So it's, this, it's really the very same process. It's just it, there's a little more teaching involved here. But actually, when I, you know, I've only been teaching for this is my 12th year now. Mm-hmm. And uh, after a 35-year career without really teaching other than one adjunct course at the University of Minnesota uh, one t- semester, uh, Johnny Saldana, who was a uh, one of our wonderful, uh, now retired, but wonderful uh, professors here, was assigned when I first got here to, to peer mentor me. And in, I think, his second evaluation, he, he wrote, Bill should think about directing this class instead of teaching it. <laughs> and the minute I read that, I went, of course, um, that's how I need to think about it. And so in some respects, because there's a lot of teaching and directing, I don't care what level you're working at. Um, so the minute I looked at it that way, it became clear to me that that
0: was very good advice. Is that what brought you into education, just a natural extension of directing? Yeah. I suspect so. I mean, what happened is that I was the
1: artistic director of a theater in Minneapolis mm-hmm. for many years at Cricket Theater, and then... There were some major financial problems, and our landlord broke our lease and kicked us out of our space. And we did eight plays in seven different locations, and so we were having financial problems. But we managed to get by them. But the board got a bit disillusioned with the funding problems that we were having, and so they decided um, that they were at the, at the end of this, uh, the season um, they were going to we were going to close the theater. But as it turned out, my final show of that final season was a piece called Triple Espresso which you can see well, sure. posters about, which turned out to pay off all of our debt and um, and uh, ran an extra eight weeks. It's been running ever since. It's been oh, running yeah. ever since, <laughs> 22 years now. Um, but what that meant is that, um, so the theater closed, even though we paid, so it closed without debt, which was That's wonderful. Amazing. I was very happy about that. But now I'm, I'm living in Minneapolis and I've got this hit show on my hands. And... Uh, we had invited a local producer to come and see it, and he, he and I and the three performers who created the piece got together to create our own for-profit venture to continue to produce the show called Triple Espresso in, uh, LLC. And so, literally, it just sort of took off in the sense that we had a couple of New York producers come in to see it, and they said, well, this is wonderful, wonderful work here. It'll never work outside of Minneapolis. It's too local and then we opened it in Chicago and it became a critic's choice in Chicago and then we m- opened it in San Diego where it ran for 11 years. Mm-hmm. We've never taken it to New York because I, I think those producers were sort of to some degree um, representative mm-hmm. of the New York attitude which is it worked over there so it ain't gonna work over here. But but, but it, it, it has ended up I think playing now in something like 48 or 50 American cities. We've done it in it's the longest-running show in Dublin history. It's uh, it, we did it in the West End of London. We did it. We've done it in um, in Belgium in Flemish. We've done it in Ber- uh, Munich and Berlin in German. So it's had quite this amazing life. But it took over my life for about ten years because suddenly we were getting offers to do this show. We had three performers who created it, who very specialized talents. So I spent the next ten years training a company of about thirty three or four now performers who could do this show so that we could have it literally we've had it running in six different cities at once basically so it, it we sort of in fact I, can, I actually went and met with one of the blue men to find out how they found the kind of specialized talents needed for that show to think of, to, to sort of create a training process mm-hmm. for finding and, and working with um, magicians who had to play one of the roles and, and piano player singers mm-hmm. um, to see if we could find the talent to to be able to keep doing it in other places. So it took over my life for 10 years. I did a little observing on a couple of television shows, thinking I might shift gears and and investigate that. A number of my directing friends from the O'Neill and from New York, when I lived there, uh, had moved out to L.A., were doing television or film. Uh, It's a great way to make a living um, when you have a family and stuff. And I really investigated that, but the minute I... I did the minute I was uh, invited to observe on on a studio show called Sybil that actually Alan Ball uh, was the head writer for. Um, he had seen my production of uh, Five Women Wearing the Same Dress in Minneapolis twice, and then invited me out to, to watch uh, to to watch Sybil. But so I watched that, and I went down to Baltimore to watch Homicide: Life on the Street, which was a very different kind of show, yeah. wonderful show. In both and in that one, I actually had lunch several days with their director of photography who was going to have to direct his own episode the following week and he wanted to pick my brain about talking to actors and I wanted to pick his brain about cameras <laughs> you know so it was actually but again what I realized really clearly after doing that was because I was looking at, at education at, 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 at teaching and teaching and looking at that as two potential paths and what I realized is what I love about the theater is working with actors and writers the most and designers certainly too. And the thing you don't get to do in television is work with actors or writers much because the producers deal with the writers, the actors are there very briefly, you don't get much rehearsal time. So it's more about camera angles and all the technical side that I don't feel wonderfully drawn to. So so it then became a a thought well, then maybe I need to look into into education. Now, is there
0: anything about the phoenix market or the phoenix area that that you think is particularly unique or uh kind of drew you to this area
1: sure the first thing that drew me um was a friend my friend uh randy reinholz who was uh head of the program at san diego state university knew i had i've been out there and i've done some guest teaching for him and stuff and he said to me he he called me said you know uh arizona state has got quite a program and their whole mission is theater for the future, so you should check them out. So the minute I looked at the mission here, I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's what would appeal to me the most. Um, Once I visited and realized how much of the theater for the future here was in the devising process and some other methods that I don't use, I I really had a talk with Linda Essig, who was the director of the program at the time, and, and I just said, so Linda, My thing is new plays, I love working with writers, and so is there room for that exploration of a different way of looking at theatre for the future? And she said, absolutely. So that was really, that is what drew me to Phoenix, to to this program, basically. When I think about it, Triple Espresso has been devised. it isn't what I would be good at, nor is it necessarily what I'm uh, most drawn to, essentially. Whereas, fortunately, there are a number of professors here who are drawn to it Wonderful. and do it quite well. Um, so I don't feel a necessity to do
0: that. Before we wrap up, kind of a big question I, I want to approach with you. Just the idea of uh, the role that second, post-secondary education plays in And a performer's life. I mean, some people, it's very contentious. We see it as unnecessary. And some people, obviously, I'm sure you have a little bit more of a bias in the other direction. Uh, So I I guess, how do you approach that? How would you justify the role that post-secondary education can play for a performer?
1: Sure. Well, for a performer, it may be different than for a director. But I would tell you that...
0: um, Artists in general, I should explain that.
1: Indeed. And and, and, uh, so from the director's point of view, Mm -hmm. here's the way I felt about it. Um, which was that I wasn't thrilled at going back to school after four years at Dartmouth, and, and a, a sort of this fellowship was there. And the reason I had applied to a graduate program was I realized that at age 22, no one was going to offer me a budget and a theater. And hey, kid, here's your <laughs> here's your opportunity. We don't know your work because you know we have been directing in college, but but uh, so. So I said to myself, essentially, well, if I go to graduate school, I will have resources, I will have artists to work with, and I can make the big mistakes, and find out what I'm actually good at and what I'm not good at, and and try things that don't work and fail, without uh, without uh, risking somebody's hundred thousand dollar budget. So for me, it was an, an opportunity to continue on a path of uh, experimenting and learning and growing. So that was my my reasoning. Mm-hmm every individual will have their own reason but certainly uh, so so I like the idea and I say this to high school students that it's probably not a great idea to go into a conservatory style undergraduate program for most people I think sometimes you train the body and the mind and the soul and the and the voice but you haven't trained the brain in such a way that the actor, performer has anything to say Mm -hmm. about the world because they don't know much about the world in some ways if you've been sort of in that hothouse. But sometimes after getting exposed, so I love Arizona State's ability because we have got so many different professors. We're so large that we have here um, every different approach to theater you can think of. And so if you fall in love with one approach or you find as an actor, this works for me and that works for me and this over here works for me, you can find somebody who teaches it here and someone who's a devotee of it and will help you become who you need to be. Then if you've discovered that, then it might be... Make- great sense to go on towards conservatory graduate program, which deals the most, let's say, in in Meisner or devising, or maybe it's uh, specializing in mime and dell'arte and and stuff like that, right? So once you know what those things are, you can really go find who who to study with, you know, who to mentor you in those things.
0: Do you think you'd like to promote in the Valley any kind of particular artists or institutions you want to give a shout out to?
1: Okay, sure. Well, I do want to talk about some of the new play development that's going on here in the, in the Phoenix area. And not just new plays, but also some good devising work. Um, several of our students are now doing that work here in town and have started theater companies that are doing it. Um, the first play development process I saw here, which intrigued me, was when I first moved here uh, almost 12 years ago. When I went to the new play uh, development workshop at the Phoenix Theater, and they have continued this, and now they're getting funding for it. It was Caleb Brees, and, and it was, uh, uh, and and now they've gotten a fund, a specific funding. So every year the Phoenix Theater does work with new plays, um, and I've been working with them almost every year, uh, doing one production. But they, they have built an audience here amongst the people who love to go to musicals at the, at the Phoenix, but at the same time want to come and see a new play in development. Um, and I'd love to see that trend because it takes, a, it takes some guts for an audience member to decide, I'm just going to go see this play I've never heard of by a playwright I've never heard of and just see what that's like. But there is now, I think, a, a, a fair amount of uh, attention being paid here. So The Phoenix is doing this work. Uh, Brelby is now uh, doing new play development as well. And uh, John Perovic is now starting his own theater company um, to, uh, to do new work as well. So we've got some playwrights and some directors and some actors who uh, are, have gotten into the idea that, that there, there needs to be uh, voices for these Uh, for playwrights in in the valley and uh, there's also the bridge initiative which is focusing on women writers and women directors and they're doing some really interesting work and bringing in some outside writers but also uh, working with local folks Um, so i love to see that there's orange theater which is doing new devised work in town and was uh, founded by one of uh one of our undergraduate students and several of our undergraduate students and and one of my MFA directors, uh, Joya Scott. So I love seeing that the community is beginning to recognize the need here for new work to begin to find a place to grow. Um, I want to say in general that I moved here from Minneapolis and St. Paul, which is a much smaller metropolitan area, yet there's just a a sort of burgeoning theater scene in like Minneapolis and St. Paul. And that's sort of twofold. It's because there are 40 Fortune 500 companies located in the, in the Twin Cities area, 3M and Pillsbury and General Mills and uh, Target stores, and the Dayton Hudson stores, etc. But what happened to make that a part of uh, of the Twin Cities scene is that one supports the other. In other words, The large companies like Amazon that I I guess has now decided that Phoenix isn't where they maybe want to build their second uh, headquarters. But I know that part of the problem might be that culturally there isn't as much of a scene here yet as there should be, both for educational purposes, you know, the educational system needs growth and support, but also the major companies in town and the sort of city fathers of the folks who are the movers and shakers. I hope will kind of wake up to the recognition that culture and the arts are crucial to attracting large companies who bring employees, who bring uh, executives, who want great education for their kids. They want a cultural scene that is vibrant and alive and that takes support. The reason they are the arts is they need support beyond just what they can charge at the box office. Sure. So, uh, so my basic point of view is that Phoenix has got a huge potential. Mm-hmm. And for artists, I, I think those who choose to stay here need to stay here because they want to push toward real support from the powers that be for those from those who have re- who recognize that a very vibrant cultural life is the heart and soul of what will attract large corporations and additional people who demand of the culture that it uh, that it feed their own cultural growth. So it, it's, it's a circle that needs to get started, and, but it would be great if it got started at the state level, at the, at the, at the corporate level, at the foundation level here to actually um, go together. And this is what happened, what, what did happen in, in Minneapolis is that Tyrone Guthrie looking for a city to build the next Stratford uh, style uh, Shakespeare theater, yes visited all these cities, and ultimately chose the Twin Cities, partly because the, the corporate foundation folks said, we're going to pledge 2% of our profits to the arts. Sure. And they started challenging each other to support the arts, and so it became a kind of engine which has allowed, um, certainly theaters in the Twin Cities mm-hmm. to grow and thrive, and really challenge, on the national level, what's going on in the arts.
0: To be tangential, I know we're running out of time a little bit, but just out of curiosity, what, what is your approach as to how you can prepare students here to uh, succeed or find their own paths you know, in the professional world here? Because you've mentioned a few times that it's been ASU undergraduate students who have formed these, these groups. Uh, what do you think your part is in, in preparing them for that?
1: Well, I hope my part is that they come and talk to me individually because you can't do this on a major scale. It's one-on-one. But I I certainly, for instance, if if they're not planning to stay in the the Phoenix area, um, many think, oh, I've got to go to L.A., I've got to go to Chicago, or I've got to go to New York. It's usually L.A., of course. (laughs) And the reality is that there are some cities out there, if this isn't the one you're going to stay in, that do support the arts and that do actually have strong theater programs, theater scenes where you might make a living as an actor or a director or a set designer, You'd have to supplement it with a certain amount of other income, and certainly what happens in the Twin Cities is there's a lot of voiceover and commercial work that also happens in that city. So actors can actually afford to make a living doing their acting. So there aren't there are a number of options as an artist as to where you decide to 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 put your time and effort in. But in in Phoenix, I guess what I would say is that um, there isn't. Huge competition yet here. So if you have a great idea for a kind of theater that you want to start, or a or a kind of group that you want to get together and discuss, well, what what could we do in in this environment to uh, to to live and work as artists? Um, there's room here for innovation and uh, and, and making an effort to uh, to push beyond just what can I what can I do individually, and maybe there's ways that you join together to, to really explore and, and maybe start knocking on some doors of of companies and and uh, which is hard to do but yeah. but maybe there's a way to, to to get gather some momentum. Sometimes it's literally just find a storefront, do a production of some sort. Everybody has to, you know, has to sort of take a hit to do that, but, but if you've got a vision and you've got a, an idea that you think isn't being done or isn't being done right here. <laughs> um, uh, then then there might be the opportunity here to start something that is already going somewhere out some other city there's already someone doing that but here maybe there isn't maybe there's uh, enough uh, enough artistic energy to to
0: create something and I'd like to ask but is uh, any personal projects you want to promote um,
1: no not in particular I I'm, am doing a, a piece March at uh, the Phoenix a brand new piece um, for, for their festival. It's for Caleb Rees? Uh, it's, the, well, Caleb Rees is no longer the supporter. Excuse that? Caleb Rees yeah. is the festival right. of the new festival? <laughs> plays. Yeah, it's for the festival, which yeah. is, I think, now just called the Phoenix, oh, uh, new works um, projects. And I'm also uh, going to be working with uh, one of my favorite playwrights here in town um, for John Perovitch's work, um, and so Angelica Holland's uh, new play, You and Me and Adam Levine. Um, So we're going to be doing, again, these are in staged reading style um, developmental projects that I'm very happy to be working on, and uh, I don't get much time to do much local work. I've enjoyed working um, with the Theatre Artist Studio on on the price last year, so I think there's some opportunities here that, that, again, artists are creating for themselves, Um, and so uh, when I I can, I'm a union director, so I have to be careful that what I'm working on is is acceptable to to the directors union, but so far I've been able to find a way to do that
0: Well, last thing I'd like to ask if uh, one concise consolidated piece of advice you'd want to give somebody who might want to go down a similar path to yourself
1: um, I think the key is to To find your passion as early as you can but this it's never too late and then really look into where that is, is happening right now. In other words, for me, it was opportunities that came my way and trying to recognize them um, and be, be, sometimes being in the right place at the right time. But the key is get prepared so that if you're in the right place at the right time, you've built the skill set to take advantage of those things. The other thing to do is, yes, go just a little bit beyond what you think you're capable of.
0: Push past your limits and find your passion wherever it may be. I love it. You put it in exactly the right words. Thank you so much, Bill. Appreciate it. Great time. Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistsphx at gmail.com.